I think when you're on the fertility journey, everything, every kind of practical step you do feels like a step closer and it's a positive thing, you know, I'm just having a checkup. Anyway, I woke up, I think a good like two, three hours later in a ward at St. Thomas's, beautiful view, looking over the Houses of Parliament <laughs> with the sun setting. A little bit confused, but didn't even know where I was. I'd just gone in, you know, to have a checkup. Turns out that I had had what they were looking for, which is something called Ashman syndrome, which means that my uterus, half my uterus was full of scars. So the uterus normally, the lining, which is what happens every month is, you know, it builds up, it sheds, we bleed. Now, if you have scarring in the uterus, then there's basically a layer of scar lying on top of the endometrium, which means that even if it were to build up, it's not shedding, which is why it had these super light periods. That's a clip from our guest, Emily, a.k.a. The Egg and Sperm Race on Insta. She's in conversation with our guest host, Katie Lindemann. Katie is Uber Barons Club online. And I'd ask Katie to chat with Emily because they've both had experiences of lining issues. And I thought it'd be a really good way to share it with you and to talk more about Asherman's syndrome. You're also going to hear in this episode a conversation with Adrian Lower, who is a specialist in dealing with Asherman's. It's such an interesting episode. So get yourself comfortable. Hi, I'm Natalie, a wannabe yogi and recent rock painter, and I created the Fertility Podcast as an A to Z of the issues that might affect you whilst you're trying to conceive. We've got expert interviews, as well as men and women sharing their struggles to hopefully help you feel less alone. I'm also a freedom fertility specialist, working with you to support you better, basically with your mental health, because I want you to feel more emotionally in control. And I'm Kate, and I'm an independent fertility nurse consultant and founder of my practice, Your Fertility Journey. I'm really passionate about natural fertility and particularly PCOS and I love empowering women to take ownership of their fertility journey. I'm also a veg gardening geek and embarrassingly a recent road bike convert and I think that's called my midlife crisis. What's embarrassing about it? Don't you look good in lycra? Uh, I couldn't bear the lycra shorts, I had to be lycra leggings. (laughs) And the pair of us are at some point going to do a sponsored bike ride so watch this space. You and I are members of, I always talk about us being a club that no one wants to join, but I know that you and I are members of a very particular club, the Thin Lining and Misbehaving Lining Club. Um, And that's something that lots of people don't talk about. We hear so much about eggs and sperm, and but womb lining is something that we don't hear that much about. And especially problems with womb lining are not as common as problems with eggs and problems with sperm. So I'm really, really excited to have you here because I think it's so important that we talk about this. Thanks, Katie. I think we called it the thin lining brigade at one point. Yeah, like it. <laughs> <laughs> so my husband and I started trying for a baby about four or five, five years ago, probably now. We were 35 at the time. So I was kind of already aware that maybe, you know, the beef fertility issues but didn't expect the years to come after about six months of trying and we actually had some monitored cycles I was put on Clomid for no apparent reason and then the doctor we were seeing at the time said why don't you just try uh, an IUI cycle and lo and behold we got pregnant super excited I felt fine everything was great and then when we went for a private scan I think it was almost 12 weeks 11 weeks I had had a miscarriage which means that I hadn't actually miscarried but the the fetus had stopped developing a week or so before which obviously was you know traumatic at the time I was just remember screaming on Holly Street and just thinking I need to get rid of this you know um, ASAP and even the thought of like just 
having something that wasn't alive in you was is traumatic. So I just walked over from Holly Street to UCL to the early pregnancy unit there and said, you know, I've had a mis miscarriage and they were like, have you been bleeding? I was like, no, but you need to see me now, you know, and then sat there for hours got seen. I remember a lovely doctor who was actually hugely um, empathetic, I remember at the time. And I was sort of, you know, advised to have um, any RPC. So it's basically a, a DNC, so it's basically scraping the uterus when they go in, um, usually under ultrasound, and they remove the fetus or the, the embryo. So they just go in and, and scrape. And this is important, obviously, for the lining bit. Had my ERPC, um, thought everything was fine, had a period within six weeks, you know, thought fine. But then I, I sort of knew that my body didn't feel right. So I went back to the same doctor to just have an ultrasound to see if I was still ovulating. This is maybe two months later. And turns out that I had a large piece of the fetus still in my body. So remains as it's so callously called. So then I literally marched back into the same EPU, crying my eyes out and probably screaming and said, you need to remove this. And they were like, have you had a bleed? I was like, yes. They were like, well, then you have to go home. I was like, no. And then I, I think I saw a doctor and then they were like, uh, I need to get my colleague. Never a good thing when, they, when the doctor needs to get a second opinion. And then they were like, I think you need to have another ERPC. So another DNC. I think there was like very, very traumatic um, 10 days because they wanted to do it with a senior consultant to remove it because, you know, at the time that it was eventually removed, I would have been 20 weeks, I think. So there was a long period. Um, and to be honest, throughout my fertility journey, that was probably the most traumatic time of not knowing when they were going to do the, the second operation. And I would literally call the... Um, EPU at UCL daily, you know, three times a day and just cry. Right. Yeah. Zali had a very similar thing in that my also had retained retained products as they yeah, that's, it. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. I had I didn't have a bleed, but it was that I was taking pregnancy tests to see if my levels were falling and I was still getting positive tests like four weeks later and my doctor was like, okay. And the thing was is that actually on the ultrasound there wasn't anything, but my HCG was still through the roof. So then I had two weeks where it was clear that I was still basically pregnant, but not pregnant. So I had two weeks where I was like, okay, well, let's see how your HCG comes down. If it doesn't come down, we're going in again. So yeah. I had a similar thing and it was just awful because I was, you know, my body was still pregnant. I still had these enormous pregnant boobs and, you know, everything. But I knew I'd had the baby removed five weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yes, completely similar. It's awful, awful. So I can completely, completely relate. And I think that with the mis miscarriage, I guess that is a key that your body still thinks you're pregnant. So when I when the first time I had it, you know, again I had just like you, you know, the huge pregnant boobs and sort of felt it's. I guess it, I didn't have any nausea or anything, so I didn't have any other symptoms. But it was just the, the boobs and the tummy still felt pregnant. But at this point, when I had my second ERPC, I didn't feel pregnant. It was just sort of knowing that there was tissue still there. Um, so eventually, just before Christmas, I had a second um, ERPC, and then I thought, you know, it's fine. And I remember asking questions at the time because the consultant said in passing, she was like, you know, there might be some scarring. And I was like, scarring? You know, I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, and then I came back three weeks later and had an ultrasound. And I remember asking, I was like, what about, is there any scarring? And she's like, well, I wouldn't be able to see that here anyway. Anyway, it was Christmas and I thought, you know, we were like, fine, started trying for a baby again, didn't get pregnant. And then we had, um, through our GP, had, uh, got referred on, on the NHS for, you know, further fertility um, uh, investigation. And then we just 
by chance, the doctor we saw, um, you know, a doctor our age, quite a young uh, female doctor said, well, if you've had, you know, two year OPCs, what are your periods like? And I was like, well, I've never had particularly heavy periods ever, um, but I don't, I think my periods are pretty light now. So she's like, ah, she said, why don't we just book you in for a hysteroscopy just to check, just to see what your uterus looks like, what your lining looks like. And for um, anyone at home, again, you and I know these very well. Yeah. What is a hysteroscopy? <laughs> hysteroscopy is a procedure where they put you to sleep and then they go, go into your uterus via your vagina with a, with a tiny camera just to look around the uterus to see what the lining looks like, to see what the lining looks like, to see what the environment looks like, basically. It's what they try to look at things that you can't see on an ultrasound. Yeah, so for anyone, basically an ERPC, as you said, is done blind. So essentially they have ultrasound on your tummy and they go in and they scrape and suck out the contents and that's surgical management of miscarriage is done and hysteroscopy as you say it's how they they go in with a camera this was a good seven months probably after the first erpc so the, uh, the first surgical procedure you know and i remember actually kind of skip you know what it was a sunny day and i remember walking to hospital not thinking i was like this you know just having a checkup it also everything i think when you're on the fertility journey everything every kind of practical step you do feels like a step closer and it's a positive thing you know I'm just having a checkup anyway I woke up I think a good like two three hours later in a ward at St Thomas's beautiful view looking over the house's apartment <laughs> with the sun setting a little bit confused because I didn't even know where I was I'd just gone in you know to have a checkup turns out that I had had what they were looking for which is something called Ashland syndrome which means that my uterus half my uterus was full of scars so the uterus normally the lining which is what happens every month is you know it builds up it sheds we bleed now if you have scarring on the uterus then there's basically a layer of scar lying on top of the endometrium which means that even if it were to build up it's not shedding which is why it had these super light periods basically just a couple of brown might be a bit Graphic. We're talking about lining and and again, this is the point, right? The bleeding is really important. I mean, the, fundamental. What kind of blood is it? What colour blood is it? And how long does it go for? Is it clumpy or gunky? Like, we're going to have to get over our squeamishness about this because this is really, really important. It is really, really important because I hadn't even realised, you know, that I virtually had no periods. And I think it was because I thought maybe my body's getting back, you know, in, into sync after the miscarriage, etc. So half my uterus was scarred shut which means I had lots of so obviously when you cut your finger you know your skin will heal and it will scar so normally that doesn't happen in the uterus you know the uterus rebuilds and the endometrium rebuilds but in in some cases it, if it's scarred over it becomes a impossible for you know an embryo to attach to the to the lining to the endometrium wall and then secondly even if it did the uterus wouldn't be expanding in the same way because it's kind of blocked so it could be dangerous and I mean it's a, unusually you get pregnant if you have a scarring in your uterus, so if you have Ashman's, but B, also if you have got pregnant, it could be dangerous and you would probably likely miscarry it at some point. But I didn't know any of this, so I just wake up at St. Thomas's, this beautiful view, sun setting over the Houses of Parliament in excruciating pain. I do um, remember my husband saying something like, you punctured her or something? And I was like, you know, kind of just waking up in the state. So it turned out that I had had scarring of the uterus. And what they did then was they'd gone in with the camera and while they had the camera in there, they tried to remove the scarring. 
Now there's lots of different schools on what you should, how you should be removing it. And I think in my case, it was burnt. You know, they were, they, they were burning the scarring. Again, different schools of thoughts. And you know, I've done a lot of research. It's kind of just burning it off, basically. Yeah. But what they accidentally did then was burn a hole through my uterus. So they had to go in through my stomach and fix that. And actually that was a pain because sometimes I got gas in my shoulder, basically. So I was like in this. Like, You've gone in for a hysteroscopy, but ended up with a full laparoscopy. And, and I, I you know, consider myself fairly researched person but I literally just wake up with this like shock of, of a having this condition b not knowing what it is and c also having a punctured uterus and various holes in my tummy. You've basically gone in with a lightsaber waved it around. Yes correct yes that's good obviously there was a little bit of a shock you know I went home you know recovered from surgery all those things and then started researching Ashman's because I hadn't, the thing is I hadn't even really heard about it and then I had a complete shock, complete fright. And I was like, first of all, and I, actually when I woke up, they said you might still have a little bit of scarring in your uterus because we had to stop the procedure. So, and then started reading them and I was like, well, if I've got 10 to 15%, as they said, then, you know, possibly this can, you know, be a problem going forward. So I ended up actually having a second hysteroscopy with what they called in the Ashman's world an A-lister. So there are certain surgeons in the UK and globally who are very well known for treating Ashman's patients. So I was lucky and I was actually covered on my insurance for it. Um, I did have a, um, a second hysteroscopy with an A-lister. Well, I was on the Ashman's group, so I know the, yeah. who, who the Premier League are. <laughs> exactly. So, But it is important. It's just because it needs, you know, somebody who has a lot of experience of removing it somebody who knows how to treat there are more surgeons in the country now who can treat them and there's a list but there is really and there are quite a few of them on the nhs as well and i think it's, it's very delicate surgery and as you correct. Know, yeah this is again having had i had two and this is yeah. also interesting because again it's if you if you are having them done privately if you have medical insurance yeah they, although medical insurance doesn't cover fertility, they do cover, a lot of them do cover miscarriages and they do cover yeah. surgeries and my hysteroscopies because they were gynae to do with my periods and miscarriages yeah. were covered. Worth knowing. <laughs> yeah. And I wish I'd had, for example, my second ERPC, I could have, or even the first one I could have had again, because I was lucky to have health insurance through my work. I could have had them done and I would have had them done quicker. So I wouldn't have had this like the most traumatic agony of two weeks of waiting for an appointment. You know, if you do have health insurance, you know, privately or through your work privately, then then it is definitely something worth looking into. Obviously, during COVID times now. So, yeah, so that was it. And then I just started researching, had my second hysteroscopy a few months later, because what they do is they also put you on hormone replacement therapy. So they put you on high doses of estrogen to try and get your lining working again, essentially, to get your uterus um, back in the, in the gym. Uh, the yeah. way it's described that every month when you're having the, the hormone replacement therapy, it's kind of like training your lining to learn how to do its thing. Exactly, exactly. So you did that for, you know, six to eight weeks and then, you know, you kind of have an onset bleed to see how that's working. Um, yeah, so I had my second hysteroscopy and I, I didn't actually have... Um, much scarring left which was good so um it looked like the scarring had been removed um which was you know which was great news um both on the nhs and then privately we were told that you know ivf is your your best option here and the reason for that being is that with the drugs you can build up the the lining a lot better than naturally um because you know looking at my periods even post removing the scars you know we're what now almost three four years down the line I, I don't have normal, the periods I had before so 
Um, I had also been tracking for years, you know, our peers on a period app just because I like the data, I guess. Um, and, you know, if I compare to the date, you know, to my periods pre, my periods post, it's kind of nothing. And I know my husband says, I can't wait for the day when we stop talking about your periods, you know, because I will be elated the month I have like one day of red blood, you know, and it's really like I'd be shouting from the lips. Guessing. Yeah. And again, I can say it's so bizarre. And I think anybody in infertility world knows the thing of you're in this half state of half the time you're desperately, it's weird, you're supposed to be desperately yeah. not wanting to get your period. But actually, when you've got lining issues, and I never had Ashman's, but I had very strong thin lining issues. So yeah. I was treated as if I was an Ashman's patient, you are desperate to see red bleeding and you are on permanent nickel watch and whereas when you're pregnant you're on nickel watch to try and hope not to see bleeding yeah when you're having treatment for thin lining or asherman's type treatment you are just desperately hoping to see red bleeding i haven't used a tampon since i've had asherman's you know so like my my periods are completely different and again i am literally just like celebrating if i have like day of red blood. That is important because it basically changed our fertility journeys. From then, you know, getting pregnant actually relatively quickly in hindsight, and felt like an age at the time, you know, then they were like, well, IVF is probably your best bet. So we moved on to IVF quite quickly and had actually had three not very successful rounds. We were extremely fortunate to get three rounds actually on the NHS, but they, uh, they didn't work out and we didn't have very much. And I um, it was maybe as tailored as I needed it to be, you know, for, for the Ashlands. And then we moved on to do IVF privately. And um, because of, again, you know, the years have gone by by this time and, you know, I'm older. So obviously the egg quality then plays, plays a difference as well. So we were um, advised to have PGS testing um, and we're lucky to kind of get two normal ones in the, in the first round. And then I actually had the summer off, which was great. And I think, you know, with infertility, I think having having times off when you're not thinking about what you're eating, what you're t the drugs you're taking, et cetera. You know, by this point, it hadn't just been like four IVF cycles, it'd also been the hormone replacement therapy. Basically, I've been on estrogen for years, like, a, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you are, yeah. your whole life is taken over by the one thing that isn't happening. And so you're, you're Absolutely, so it's, yes, yeah. so having that break. And then we, and then we tried frozen embryo transfers and trying to build up the lining. But the truth is my lining just never got particularly thick. And I did have triple lining. I have had so many cancel cycles, you know, frozen embryo, you know, there's, you kind of stop, 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 stop. It's kind of devastating. You have, you know, at the time you had these two embryos in the freezer and then you, you know, you, you sort of can't use them. But eventually my doctor was like, we're just going to have to try, you know? So we did, you know, on, on, on a fairly decent lining. When we say decent, because this is something, again, yeah. you and I know the shorthand of this and we'll use all the lingo. Yeah. Um, we talk about, you mentioned triple lining. You know, we talk about thickness and we talk about appearance and triple lining. They're both important. What does good lining mean? So a triple lining means it's got three layers. A good lining is a nice, juicy lining. So anyone who's had a scan of the lining, it should be, it looks white, but it's like this nice juicy thick lining they measure the thickest part of the lining they say that for an IVF cycle really ideally you shouldn't have anything um, under seven or eight millimeters because your chances are just so much smaller the time I did get pregnant because it was an IUI I know that my lining was 11 millimeters that was kind of my natural standard I guess um, a lot of people are and you'll know this better than me Katie but a lot of people have kind of you know 13 14 millimeters which I dream of you know <laughs> it's this weird thing of numbers like everything is this game 
game of numbers and you yeah. hear about, you know, lots of people about numbers of eggs, but you become really obsessed with who knew that a millimetre could be so important. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, that's what they, they kind of say, you know, they, they don't really like to do transfers on this kind of seven, eight millimetres. Now, there are people who've got pregnant or five millimetre linings, you know, but the chances are smaller. The research says, I think, that like seven millimetres, like bare minimum and most centres won't yeah. do it preferably eight, preferably yeah. nine. And again, I think the important thing is, is that when they're measuring this, they're measuring it at essentially at the time you would trigger. So it's at the bit where you're yeah. still on the estrogen. Because what happens is after right. you start taking progesterone, so whether that's after you've had egg collection or when you start progesterone for a frozen transfer, your lining changes. So you're yeah. measuring this before the, because the lining acts differently under estrogen yeah. and it's getting nice and thick and it's thickening and thickening. And then yeah. after the progesterone, that's when it changes and it's essentially turning on and that's when the whole receptivity thing kicks in to go, right, and then the lining changes appearance. So whenever we're talking about this, we're talking about looking at the lining before progesterone because after yeah. progesterone, the yeah. thickness kind of doesn't matter and it will look different. So I think that's... Exactly, so that triple, the, the nice triple lining you should see yeah. It condenses with progesterone, so it just looks like a blob, basically. Yeah. There isn't a lot of research. There's quite a lot of guesswork. You know, you start taking your progesterone and then you transfer five days later. Now, because I've had all these issues and because, you know, we've had 10 IVF cycles and, you know, we, they haven't, no embryo, even PGS normal embryos. So uh, they say that, you know, if you have a, a healthy uterus and a healthy endometrium, you should have a 75 to 80% chance of it working with a PGS normal embryo. Again, you know, these aren't my figures, but that's kind of the figures out there. Um, if you don't, um, you know, if your uterus and your endometrium isn't receptive at the right time, um, then again, you might have issues. And, and that's the thing, there's just not enough of research. I can completely relate to what you've said about, I felt like I wasn't getting off the starting block. Other people I could see were having it's this really messed up thing where you see lots of other people who are having loads of failed cycles and I actually got jealous of people who could say BFN, BFN, BFN because I thought yeah. well at least you're getting off the starting block yeah. I can't even get to a transfer and we had embryos in the freezer and I couldn't get there I had a very adversarial relationship with my body because I just didn't trust it and my periods were really upsetting and, and that emotionally and so I just thought of my body as this place where embryos went to die and yeah, it was yeah. Very, very difficult yeah, completely. I mean, I can completely relate to that. And I think it's just that, you know, the thought of my, my body's just not working, you know, and it, it, so I think I had, in, in a sense, um, sort of two sides. And at one point, I had a lot of anger, I think, as well, and a lot of anger, because I felt like somebody else had destroyed my uterus. Yeah. So I think that part, those emotions were important to work through as well. I mean, I don't feel angry now. And people say to me, why wouldn't you sue the doctor, etc. And you know, to, for me, there's no gain in doing that. Nobody could tell me why my uterus was scarred, why I got Ashman's and not, you know, the woman next to me or suddenly RPC, you know. So, so again, there's not enough research, there's not enough science in it. So I think that especially in, you know, not getting off the starting block, but also I've had so, I think I've had 10 embryos transferred over the years. So we've had eight fresh cycles, some of them were freezals. So, but then we've also had two embryo transfers, frozen embryo transfers, um, and then a lot of <laughs> starting and stopping. You feel like a failure. You're like, you know, the one thing that you were kind of put on this planet to do, you, you can't do. So I think that emotionally, that's really hard, but we just go through the motions and you think, you know, is it my eggs? Is it, you know, the embryos? But then we had PGS normal embryos. So 
we didn't have loads, but we had quite a few. And, you know, I've managed to produce them each cycle, at least last year, not this year. But So you sort of go through the motions, but then you just keep moving your goalposts, I think. So eventually, last summer, we um, gave up, in a sense, on, on my body. Um, we had, had just had another failed embryo transfer with PGS normal embryo and decided to pursue surrogacy. And that, in a sense, was a relief because it's not my body having to do it anymore. And it's not me after all these years. And we are luckily um, now pregnant by a surrogacy, which is amazing. And it just made me see, you know, go through actually our surrogates, uh, frozen embryos transfer cycles. Uh, two of them were cancelled as well. And the clinic kept cancelling them because aligning wasn't uh, nine or 10 millimeters and it didn't look absolutely perfect. And I was just saying, I would have you know, he's done anything to have this nine or 10 millimeter lining. So I think it just kind of showed really what we were up against. And I think when you're amidst it, when you're on the, on the kind of the, the treadmill, you just, you just want, you just, you're so desperate for it to want to work. But I'm so happy now that we actually moved on and we are getting, you know, hopefully at the end of the summer, um, our, you know, our baby. Um, it's just not the way we ever thought it would be. Um, it's a huge relief, actually. It's, I just feel calmer in a sense, because I'm not, I'm not on drugs anymore as well, you know? I'm over it. Well, thank you so much to our guest host, Katie Linderman, whose details will be in the show notes. You can find out all about what she's doing with her Uber Barons Club there. And Emily, what a journey. And I'd asked Emily for an update because that chat was recorded a little while back. You may well have heard Emily chatting with Emma and Gabby on Big Fat Negative, another brilliant fertility podcast. But Emily's given me the latest because the pair of them chose to go down the surrogacy route, choosing to have a, a, a Ukrainian surrogate, which is an easy path and they shipped their remaining embryo in a thermos flask with a stranger on a plane from London to Kiev last year and found out on Christmas Day that they were expecting their baby and they thought things were going smoothly they had a 13-week scan in February and you know what I'm gonna say because obviously COVID-19 happened and lockdown hit so Ukraine closed its borders and airports in early March making it just impossible to enter the country and Emily spent a lot of lockdown writing letters to her MP, the foreign minister, the shadow foreign minister and eventually she did get a response from the uh, foreign office to say that they would work with the Ukraine Ministry of Foreign Affairs to support their case. So the Ukraine has recently opened its borders and there are now a few commercial flights weekly to Kiev so things are looking brighter However, the UK is on the Ukrainian COVID red list. So that means a self-quarantine of 14 days is mandatory when you get there. You have to use an app which can only be downloaded on a Ukrainian number. And you've got to have the app when you cross the border. So there's now this option for them to reduce the quarantine period if they can uh, produce a negative COVID test, which has to be taken in the Ukraine within the first 24 hours of landing, which basically means Emily and her husband are currently trying to navigate how they will get to Ukraine, get hold of Ukrainian SIM card, how they'll take the COVID test and ideally be there for the birth of their baby girl in late August. (laughs) So keep an eye on Emily's Insta. The details will be in the show notes. She's uh, the egg and sperm race. And Emily said that her husband did say after a five-year-long journey, it would be strange if things went smoothly. But wowzers. I mean, the resilience that we show on our route to parenthood is just amazing. So thank you, Emily, for sharing that. And we are going to be hearing next from Adrian Lower, who is actually the consultant that Emily saw. He's going to be talking more about Ashman's and about the work he does. 
Before that though, I just want to make sure you know that both Kate and I are on a very specific mission to support you along the way, not just with the podcast, but in the work that we're doing. You'll know I've been talking about how I'm now qualified as a freedom fertility specialist, which is all about helping you with your emotional well-being. And I'm currently running a challenge in my closed Facebook group, Talk Fertility, called Save Your Sanity Whilst Trying to Conceive. And if you want to find out more about ways that we can work together, the details will be in the show notes. Kate works as a fertility nurse consultant, helping you understand much more about your cycle and understanding more about natural fertility methods. And she's a specialist in PCOS. So again, do get in touch with Kate. Both of us work in different ways, but together create this brilliant support package that I really want you to know is there, whatever stage you are at in your treatment. So if you do need more support, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Right, let's get on with the show and hear from our expert, Adrian Lower. So we're now going to welcome Dr. Adrian Lower to the podcast. Adrian is a consultant gynecologist and independent fertility consultant because we want to talk more about Asherman. So Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, first of all, can we talk about what is Asherman's, to just explain it as, as clearly and, and, and easily as possible. Okay. Uh, Asherman's syndrome is a condition in which the front wall of the uterus sticks to the back wall of the uterus. So it's caused by fibrous adhesions or scarring inside the uterus, and it normally results from surgical treatment of a miscarriage or a retained placenta or termination of pregnancy when uh, the endometrium, the tissue which lines the uterus, is scraped away, maybe a little too vigorously or even with normal force. Uh, If there's infection there, that can destroy the endometrium. And then if you don't have endometrium between the, uh, the walls of the uterus, scar tissue falls and it can obliterate the cavity. You've just made, Nassie and I are watching each other on video, and you've just made us both squirm when you were explaining <laughs> that. There's no, there's no nice way to really describe it, though, is no, there? No, no, no. But that's a very good explanation, though. That, that really does cover it well. I'm intrigued, though, What with regards to how many women may be diagnosed with Asherman's, and also, probably even more importantly, how many may, be, may go undiagnosed. That's a, a very good question. Um, Asherman syndrome seems to be largely unrecognized by many of my colleagues. The exact incidence of Asherman syndrome is unknown. Some people think it's as high as 5% of people who have uh, surgical procedures on their uterus will have adhesions afterwards. I think it may even be more than that. Uh, the average gynecologist will see one or two cases a year and uh, a lot of people question whether it really exists or not. I see four or five people a week with Asherman syndrome and I'm very clear that it does exist but you have to look for it. You can't always tell from an ultrasound scan unless you're looking specifically for one or two very subtle and telltale signs. And the only real way to to diagnose is is by doing either a saline infusion scan where you put saline in the wound to dilate it up a little bit and you can then see the scarring and the the tissue inside the uterus uh, or by a hysteroscopy 
where you actually put a little telescope inside of you just to, to have a look. But very often, putting the telescope in itself, if you dilate the, the cervical canal, the opening to the womb beforehand, you can break down the very adhesions that you're looking for and not even realize that they were there in the first place. So it's, it's under-recognized, but does cause problems. Uh, and then the other thing to say is that, that many women wouldn't even know about it. They, they'd find perhaps that their periods became a bit lighter after they've uh, had uh, a, a pregnancy uh, or a, a termination. And if they're not actively trying to conceive, they might think, oh, well, that's nice. My periods aren't as heavy as they used to be. And, uh, and, and they may even think it's a benefit, which perhaps it is if they're not actively trying to conceive. But for those women who are wanting to get pregnant, the, if part of the cavity is obliterated, it can have a really, a, a really profound effect on their fertility. And, uh, and often it is quite easily treated. Well, I, I do want us to talk about how it's treated in a minute, but just in terms of that awareness piece and other signs, you mentioned the change in period in the conversation that we we had with Emily and um, Katie talking about Emily's experience. She talked about the, the blood in her period changing quite significantly. So do we think that we need much more awareness about those changes post uh, a procedure being more linked to a possible sign of Ashman syndrome? I think that if periods do change, then that's the first sign. And it's very important to listen to one's patients because you know, they, they will tell you what the issue is. And, and if the periods have changed, then you really have to investigate. You have to look and see whether there's a, whether there's a physical cause, whether there's a some sign of Ashman's there. And the periods can vanish completely and be completely absent afterwards in in, um, in some cases. And I guess that can really lead then to it being misdiagnosed. So it could be that a woman might receive a diagnosis of PCOS if her, if her um, periods are absent, although she should be tested properly. Yeah. But, you know, a GP yeah. might just say, oh, well, you know, it could be PCOS. With, with that in mind, and when you mentioned about, you know, it being under-recognized and you talked about how you can identify it through the saline scan or a hysteroscopy could it still be then not recognized unless you unless you know what you're looking for and you're an expert like yourself part of the uh, the problem is that if it if it's easy it, it's very easy but sometimes the reason that there is scarring there is because the uterus is a slightly abnormal shape or an abnormal curvature to it and what might have happened is during the, the DNC or the, the scrape, whatever's been done to cause the Ashman syndrome, there might be a bit of a false passage created. So the, the probe or the dilator can, can slide underneath the endometrium and even into the muscle of the uterus rather than into the cavity itself. And, uh, and the trouble is when you go back and you try to explore that, unless you're specifically looking for it and doing it under, under direct vision or with x-ray control to make sure that your instrument is where you think it is then you can make that false passage larger and uh, you think oh there's lots of adhesions here and people who haven't got experience will sort of cut away trying to increase the size of that false passage thinking that they're in an obliterated cavity and in fact all they're doing is creating a false cavity and uh, and creating more difficulty and, and more damage which is what the major 
concern of many of the the women who post on the Ashman's uh, website are, are concerned about that the people who who don't necessarily have the experience try to perform the surgery and can make the situation worse than it was when they started if that's possible I mean hearing that it just it, it, it's 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 quite concerning in that when faced with these procedures and it's not something that I've been through personally, but in the conversations that I've I've had with women, you know, they just want the procedure over and they're then in that vulnerable position of trusting that it's going to be the right thing. And I wondered what you thought about informed consent of the risks of the procedure being highlighted more. Yeah, that that's a concern that many people uh, raise, that they weren't warned of the risk of, uh, of adhesions and scarring um, in the uterus after a, a DNC or surgical management of a miscarriage or termination of pregnancy. And there's no there's no doubt that, that it should be included in the list and people should be made aware of it because then if their periods don't resume after the procedure, then they can uh, they can investigate it and find out why it's uh, why it's not right. And it's fair to say that it happens to some people some people get Ashman syndrome and others don't. Is that right? Um, yes. I mean, some people go through a really massive, difficult procedure, placenta completely stuck and uh, and doesn't come away. And then the periods will return completely to normal and no sign of any adhesions afterwards. So it, it's very difficult to predict who's going to get um, get this. What would you say to anyone who has had uh, a trauma or a procedure and there was the the risk that they they may have or may develop Ashermans would you would you uh, would you tell them to be looking out for symptoms would you would you suggest that that's what we should be saying yeah I think they just need to keep an eye on their periods I mean it's not uncommon if the periods will be a bit lighter for a month or two after the procedure and uh, and, and sometimes you may miss one completely and there may be some some scarring which just prevents the uh, the uterus from uh, emptying the first period which comes along but very often the second period that any minor adhesions may be broken down so I think it's wrong to go in too soon but I but I think that one has to be aware that it's a possibility and uh, people should seek uh, should seek investigations and seek professional help the trouble is most consultants don't see enough of this to recognize that it's a problem and so there's there's an education process required amongst my colleagues as much as amongst patients to, to look out for this. We're so used to now diagnosing PCOS. We're diagnosing more of that um, and endometriosis. But I rarely see things like adenomyosis and Asherman's diagnosed comparatively. So you're right, that education piece definitely needs to be there. So I think that if people are concerned that they might have Asherman syndrome, uh, the simplest and probably least expensive investigation is something called a saline infusion sonogram. Uh, this is a standard transvaginal ultrasound scan uh, where the, the anatomy is checked, but you also put a tiny little catheter into the uterus, which will allow you to instill some saline. So you expand the cavity with with saline and where there's where the saline is you'll see a black area inside the uterus which is the, the water the saline and if there are some adhesions present you'll see dense white uh, areas on the scan which are 
shining brightly and it's a, it's a very easy way of, of diagnosing it. I think it should be mandatory for everybody going into IVF cycles to have at least a saline infusion sonogram, if not a hysteroscopy. But the hysteroscopy obviously is much more expensive and more difficult to access. And can you see the patient power taking effect? I mean, we, we're seeing all sorts of shifts in conversations that are happening in in between clinics and and patients uh, as a result of patients becoming better informed do you think that the clinics will take this on board and listen more if 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 more women are going and asking for this i think it it is uh, expanding i think that uh, more people are having further investigations the the problem is particularly in the private sector if you if you put too many investigations in at the front end, you increase the barrier to accessing treatment. And I think you've got to be careful that you don't uh, outprice the procedure. But when you look at the cost of, uh, of a cycle of IVF, you know, five or six thousand pounds, the cost of a saline sonogram is about 500 pounds. It's probably worthwhile spending that to avoid wasting a, an embryo further down the line. Yeah, 100%. So once a woman has had a definitive diagnosis of Asherman's, what's the treatment with regards to fertility and then obviously for women who aren't trying to conceive? Hysteroscopy surgery is is really the only answer and it should be done by hysteroscopy, ideally with a very small telescope, only two millimetres in diameter, uh, with an operating channel so that you can put some very small scissors about a millimetre in diameter down the operating channel and then those scissors will divide the adhesions which are present. That's all that you need to do is to to divide the adhesions, uh, but it's getting the scissors into the right place, which is the important thing. And I tend to do these procedures with the hysteroscopy, so I can see on the screen exactly what's happening. And I do it under ultrasound control. So the patient has a full bladder and we have a colleague shining the ultrasound scan over their abdomen through the bladder so we can see the uterus. And I can see that the the hysteroscope is going directly into the cavity of the uterus and not creating or exploring this false passage, which I mentioned. And... uh, And then we also do the procedure under x-ray control. So I have an uh, x-ray beam in the theatre. And once we open the cavity, we then perform a hysterosalpingogram so we can confirm that it's open. We can also check the fallopian tubes at the same time. And and it helps just to get a a plain view of the of the uterus as well as what one's seeing through the through the scope. So there's three modalities. And and that's easy for me to organise because I've got two or three of these cases on every operating list that I do. But for the, the, the surgeons, which I mentioned, who might only see one or two cases per year, it's very difficult to marshal that sort of equipment in, in place uh, for a case which they're doing rather infrequently. So for a woman who's not trying to conceive, would... Would you look at a hormonal coil, for example, or what are the treatments? Definitely not a hormonal coil. I, I wouldn't. Uh, the trouble with the hormonal coil is that it uh, secretes progesterone, mm. and that thins the endometrium. So that is going to make the situation oh, wow. worse rather than better. It will stop their periods, but 
I think that if somebody uh, is not trying to conceive and whose family is complete, then it probably doesn't really need treatment unless they're getting cyclical pain. The other thing which can happen with Asherman syndrome is if the outflow of the uterus is obstructed, then as the endometrium, the lining of the womb is shed each month, it creates fluid inside the uterus that the uterus then cramps and goes into spasm in trying to expel that and that causes cyclical pain so monthly pain at the time that a woman would have her period she'd get the pain but no blood loss and so obviously that requires treatment but if the periods are just lighter than they used to be and she's certain that she doesn't want to have any more children then i probably wouldn't treat it because it doesn't go on to cause further problems and it's not going to develop into something nasty cancer or anything like that it's just a the part of the uterus is blocked so the periods are lighter so adrian in terms of it being treated have we got figures on how then successful it is how much success there is for women to go on and get pregnant after having asherman's having it treated not really um i can only go on anecdotal evidence and i've seen i don't know 500 people over the last uh, few years and there's only a handful of those people for whom we've not been able to, uh, to, to achieve a pregnancy. The good thing about Asherman syndrome, most of the people who come along are pregnant and may have had a number of pregnancies and miscarriages, but they, they are fertile and uh, they they do conceive quite easily. And so if you can restore the cavity, the prognosis is is very good. The problem arises when there's been really, really severe uh, adhesions or part of the endometrium has been removed, if you like, when, when a fibroid has been taken out of the uterus and and we can't restore the cavity. And for those people, then I would normally recommend surrogacy. So we take the uterus out of the equation, the ovaries are still working, they're still producing eggs usually because most of them are young. And so so then I, I recommend IVF surrogacy. But uh, you know, th- there's only been a small, a handful of people, maybe 20 in the, in the last, uh, out of that 500, who've, who've not been able to go on and, and conceive that I know have come back and, and sought surrogacy. Yeah, that's exactly what Emily, who we, we spoke to before you, that's the journey that she's now, now on. So would you therefore say that if there's this lack of awareness among medical professionals about Asherman's, yet we know that if women are treated, or anecdotally we know that if women are treated, then the likelihood of them going on to conceive is really high. Does that not kind of make you think that actually research in that area would be a really good thing to then be able to show the evidence and raise awareness? I'm not sure necessarily it's research. It's very difficult to do surgical research because to to randomise patients, you have to uh, get people to, to join into a study some you'd give treatment to, some you wouldn't give treatment to. Then you'd have to wait six months or maybe a year. And very few people would want to enroll in a study, which they would know wasn't going to give them any treatment for a year, where the other, the other ones would get treatment straight away. So I think that, that research and, and prospective studies are extremely difficult to justify and to organize. Everybody's going to want to have treatment, particularly as there's, there's very little downside to the treatment, providing it's done done properly. I I think the answer is 
to establish recent regional centers. Uh, difficult for me because I don't work in the NHS now, but I, I think that if we could establish regional centers where where people would treat Ashman syndrome much more frequently, develop an expertise at, uh, at managing this, and so that when they're doing the operating list and the procedures to treat it, they've got all the facilities uh, available, the ultrasound scans, the, uh, the X-ray tubes, so that they can do the, uh, the hysterosalpingogram at the same time. And, uh, and the outcomes would be, would be much better, and the risk of causing further damage through uh, getting in the wrong place would be reduced. And uh, you know, that would be the, the, the best way forward, I think. So with that comes there being more awareness of people maybe putting themselves forward or presenting with the symptoms of Asherman's? The trouble is, it's it's so badly managed you know, that most people who have it uh, will seek treatment outside of the NHS, and uh, and then there's only a, a very small handful of people who, like myself, who see these these patients who who have a have a reputation on the uh, the patient support websites and so on, and so the NHS doesn't get better because they don't see the uh, number of cases. I was just going to say, in terms of support, then we know of the Asherman Society. We know that there is an Asherman's Facebook group, which we'll put details of in in the show notes. I just wondered if you knew of other areas of support. Asherman's.org website is the only one that I know. The Mumsnet, I think, puts a, a bit on as well. But um... I did a little bit of research before we spoke to you and just Googled Asherman's and support and see what came up. And it, what, there wasn't a huge amount there. Not, you know, Had I put in PCOS or endometriosis, I, I would be seeing a lot more. Yeah. Well, that's why we're making this podcast to start the conversation yeah. and hopefully push it yeah. forward um, and signpost people. And obviously, we'll put your details, Adrian, as well for people to um, to get in touch with you. Thank you. I think I mean that was fascinating for me to understand more about it. It's something that I've been aware of and we've been wanting to talk about in the podcast, but to really get to grips. And also, as we heard previously, Emily's experience and, and Katie talking about it. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. Really, really interesting talking to you. It's a pleasure. It's nice to speak to you both. So thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Katie and Emily. All the details of our guest today will be in the show notes. Make sure you check them out however you're listening. If you haven't already subscribed, do so in your favourite podcast app. And you can rate and review us in iTunes and Stitcher. And Podchaser is another place as well because it's always lovely to know what you think. Thank you for your support. We've got one week left of the Fertility Podcast of this season and then we're having a little bit of a break. But until the next time, 